Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting across North America out of Wilmington, North Carolina on Big Talker 1067 FM and on Saga 960 AM in the broader Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, back at the mic, uh, reporting to you from Vienna, Austria. And uh, on the other side of the mic, uh, my dear co-host David Clement had to ride solo there for a little bit. David, uh, great to chat with you again on the program. Yeah, yeah. Welcome back. Welcome back. Congratulations on the arrival of uh, of your second daughter. Um, I, I fully expect that your hair will probably start to fall out or go gray or both. Um, so that's exciting. Well, as I like to tell my, my wife, I'm silver foxing before my time. Uh, I probably won't <laughs> lose hair. I've got plenty of that, you know, that old uh, French Canadian ancestry that keeps me warm. Yes, I probably won't lose it, but uh, yeah, there'll, there'll be a little bit of color. It's definitely been, uh, yeah, it's been interesting. It's uh, it's an experience. You know, I thought it would be very bad during COVID, but it actually did not turn out to be so poor. And mm-hmm. uh, definitely great to you know be with family to help out around here for a little bit. Again, as a early dad, there ain't much you can do uh, mm-hmm. except clean the house yep. and uh, take care of uh, the other child. So yes. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again for uh, taking on. You had some great interviews. I got to talk to David Zaruk. I saw that to uh, Mark mm-hmm. Sanford. Uh, some mm-hmm. great episodes that you guys can go back and listen to over there on consumerchoiceradio.com. And I got a quick update, David. Ooh, let's hear we it. We are now podcasting 2.0 compliant. Okay. Meaning, if you listen to our program on a podcasting 2.0 compliant app, including Breeze, Fountain, uh, there's many more that we'll include in the show notes. Uh, mm-hmm. Any of these where you're able to have a Bitcoin wallet, you can now stream sats or little satoshis or boost them our way while you're listening to the program. Oh, very cool. Very cool. So I this like is that. Uh, the amazing initiative of the Podcast Index. Uh, that's Dave Jones and Adam Curry. Uh, they've been on mm-hmm. tweaking on the next level of podcasting. Uh, this is the value for value model, as they called it, uh, where yep. people, if they find value in your product, you should send them the value uh, that you think they deserve. So they've set that all up. We have our wallet. We have our node connected. Uh, so all of the payments will go through the Bitcoin Lightning Network, uh, which is a great layer two solution. And uh, there's a lot more of that stuff that we'll we'll probably get into one time. I'm hoping to have Dave Jones on because I think he's a brilliant uh, programmer and fellow and I've used his products uh, for a long time and uh, he's he's really ahead of the time so we are compliant so if you head on over to uh, podcastindex.org uh, you search consumer choice radio you click on the little lightning and uh, you'll see that people are able to send their satoshis their small little units of bitcoin our way if you want to send cool. one bitcoin that's great uh, but yes we would <laughs> gladly accept one bitcoin True, but uh, you know, average, you know, people send five or six thousand sats, you know, just a couple of yeah. cents or bucks at a time. But uh, very we cool. are able to do so now, and um, I'm very excited about this. We're going to be bringing this to the entire family of the Consumer Choice Center podcasts, mm-hmm. uh, including the European Consumer, which David, you were on recently uh, mm-hmm. as well, and uh, to our, our normal cast where we put our radio hits and such. So that is going to be a great time, great innovations, podcasting 2.0. Um, I think we're the first radio show to do this. I'm going to have to confirm with, with Dave, but I think we are likely the first radio show to use this. Ooh, use I like crown. that. 
We'll get a yes. little get a little PNG made up for our website. Add so, that yeah. to your Twitter bio. Uh, very true. Uh, put a little yeah. lightning on there too, and uh, attract all the Bitcoin maxis. Uh, so, David, uh, you, you've got a nice little interview uh, teed up here for the second segment that I wanted to at least preview. Uh, mm-hmm. You're able to speak with a member of the Canadian Parliament. Tell us all about that before we uh, before we get into the issues of the day. Yeah, I had a nice sit down with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, the Beaches East York Member of Parliament. Um, just, I mean, he very much feels like the adult in the room. And this is, I mean, it, it compares to U.S. politics as well, because everything is so hyper politicized or polarized. And he just seems like one of the few who really gets it, who's just like well-intentioned, can find common ground where it exists, doesn't necessarily disagree like he's lighting his hair on fire when the opposition suggests something that um, they don't particularly like. And I mean, that's just such a refreshing tone in today's political environment. So um, that will be coming up uh, shortly after our commercial break here. And uh, you do look forward to that. Um, he, I guess we could probably call him a friend of the show now, given that is it, it, it is his second appearance on the show. He's a two-timer, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And actually, I do have to say, um, after interviewing Mark Samford, I had not read his book, but I very quickly ordered it on Amazon Prime and, and read it. And it is a very, very good um very, very good expose, not only into his life, where he's very frank and honest and open about um, his political journey, the scandal that kind of unwound his um, his governorship in, in South Carolina, and then where the Republican Party can go forward and um, just a very refreshing read. So I highly recommend that for anyone who listened to that interview, who's maybe thinking, oh, maybe I should pick up that book. I do definitely recommend it. I wonder how that compares to the book by John Boehner, uh, which I, I did read a couple months ago, and that was sort of you know going through his time as Speaker of the House and coming up as a politician and um, something you would love, David, playing a lot of golf. Yes, <laughs> a lot of yes. golf, a lot of and red drinking wine. A, drinking a lot of red wine. He a sounds like red a, wine. he sounds like a beauty. He is, and uh, you know he's he's similar. He's into our issues too. You know he's he's mm-hmm. someone who's. Uh, He's he's into the vaping stuff, you know. He's into the cannabis stuff on on uh, I think the board of uh, mm-hmm. one of these cannabis companies. He's yeah. I, I guess that's the time to uh, <laughs> once you get out of Congress, you know, you start looking at the fun stuff. Uh, yeah. We can get into the fun stuff before we ever get elected. Yes, not that we ever will. Yeah, <laughs> been there, tried that. Uh, no, I don't think we're getting elected. But um, yeah, it's uh, no, it's. I, I do enjoy reading those books, especially when they're like, you can tell the person's like really let their hair down and they're not like keeping things, keeping appearances up. Um, well, they're not using it to run because every politician does this, you know, like Andrew Yang. Well, maybe mm-hmm. you liked his book, but, you know, people would come out with a book right before they run for some office. That's mm-hmm. usually some wishy-washy biography about how they're the best or something. Yeah. Yeah. Some. Yeah, exactly. There's there's it, it, there's. In that type type of book, there is almost no negative self-reflection or they're looking back and being like, oh, I shouldn't have handled that that way. Um, where the books after politics, if they're done right, usually offer a glimpse into the inner workings of what goes on in a way that you can't really see unless you're there. And so that's what I like about 
Mark Sanford's book. And I can only assume that Boehner's book has some similar tone to it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely uh, put that up again on a link to that on consumerchoiceradio.com. Any of these uh, interviews are awesome. Continue uh, mm-hmm. subscribing if you can. If you're listening on the radio, do check out the website and you'll be able to listen to that at any time, whether you're uh, jogging or at home with your own glass of red wine. So you can have some fun. <laughs> so, David, what do we got for today? Uh, it's been uh, I've been out for about two weeks. I tried to keep up with some of the you know news. I saw a little bit what was happening, but but I got to know what is uh, what what's kind of tickling your brain lately. I mean, I think the thing that sticks out to me the most that I just found so entertaining um, was the exchange between. Joe Manchin and Bernie Sanders over this infrastructure bill. Um, and so the backstory for our listeners is Bernie Sanders was telling, was telling Joe, uh, we gotta, we gotta do $3 trillion or whatever it was in spending. We gotta and do $3 trillion. There you go. Yeah. That's a better impression. And, and Joe Manchin responded and he made a zero with his fingers and he just goes, I'm comfortable doing nothing. Like, we have spent a lot of money. Maybe we should just not for six months. Um, Definitely which, the title of this program. I'm comfortable doing nothing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful. And I mean, he's obviously getting a lot of criticism from Democrats and there were rumors he was going to leave the party. But I mean, how refreshing is it to have someone on the other side of the aisle say, hey, this is unsustainable spending we're contributing to inflation maybe we don't need to do a lot of this um and i think between him and and kristen cinema they've probably saved taxpayers close to one and a half or 1.75 trillion dollars um in in spending and i mean for american listeners yeah, $1.75 trillion is still probably too much if you're fiscally conservative and worried about the sustainability of U.S. debt, but it's a heck of a lot better than $3 trillion or some of the even larger proposals. And I think for the most part, taxpayers have those two senators to thank for it because they really held their ground and said, hold on a second, I don't think we should go this far. Yeah, I mean, at least publicly, that's all the things that we've been able to read is that there are a lot more senators who are opposed to this, but don't necessarily want to come out. Don't don't necessarily have the cojones to do so because <laughs> they'll get slaughtered. I can't imagine yep. who that would be. I, I'd probably need to go through the roster because I don't think it would be like a Klobuchar or this Joker Blumenthal in Massachusetts or anything like that. Yeah, I don't know I, that would be. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure, but I I mean I can guarantee you that like there are other centrist Dems who are probably looking at this and going, what are we doing here? Um, at yeah, least we need, the, we need the rise of those market Dems. We need those. Yes. Yeah. Market Dems. The Jared Polises of the world for, we need, for we need a couple those, of those who don't know. Yeah. The governor of, um, of Colorado. Great dude. Very good dude. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think what else is on the docket. I mean, there were, there was big news not to get too much back into COVID stuff, but big news about, Fauci and the Wuhan lab and Rand Paul essentially being proven right that there was funding that had gone for gain and function research. And where's the politifact on this thing? You know, where's the, the where are the remember all the fact checkers? Where's mm-hmm. the fact checking organization on this? 
because like we have all these public statements, we have everything, and then we have this letter that the National Institutes of Health was basically forced to send out there saying, well, actually, yes, we did fund uh, via these grants uh, this particular type of research. There's no, you know, there's no, no people apologizing, nobody calling them out. I haven't seen Fauci on, you know, TV, anyone reporting on that or asking questions. This is the yeah. stuff that makes people very cynical because, like, we have an entire cycle of uh, an accusation. People deny it. We wait a while. There's proof. And then it just, like, goes away. Yeah, it was like, um, I'm forgetting his first name, but Clapper in the National Security. Oh, James Clapper. The, yeah. Absolute he, worst. Yeah, when he lied about the Edward Snowden leaks and saying that they weren't, that, that the NSA's tactics were not catching and being used to monitor the communications of Americans, which turned out obviously to be a bold-faced lie. His response was, not wittingly. Yes, yes. Which, and actually, I mean, it was either Wyden or Rand Paul who actually asked him that question too. So it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, and just crazy. Like, I don't, it's it's just so absurd that that you can get away with fabricating something like that obviously of national interest. Um, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure why they get it. I mean, the only person who gets more of a free pass is like the weatherman uh, in, in regards to like being wrong. <laughs> not, not even, not even if you watch the, uh, the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where he confronts the weatherman. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, David, we've got uh, amazing guests coming up uh, for the next segment. Give us a little bit of a preview again to tune our listeners uh, maybe a little bit of a soundbite uh, that you mm -hmm. think is worthy. Yeah, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, Member of Parliament for Beaches East York. We talk about um, his perspective on politics, why he is, in my opinion, a much more tame and sane uh, Member of Parliament. Um, what's next on the harm reduction docket, because that's been a big thing for him. And we talk about some of the myths and what's worked uh, internationally. And we also talk about taxes, which is fun to talk about with a liberal um, politician because we talk about the excise tax on non-alcoholic beer, which is insane that it still exists. And we also talk about some of the very heavy-handed tax systems that are set up. Stay tuned for that. That'll be right after this commercial break. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region and the Big Talker 106.7 in Wilmington, North Carolina. I have uh, the pleasure of having another repeat guest on the show, uh, the Member of Parliament for Beaches uh, East York, um, who uh, quite handily won re-election again, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, first off, I did want to point out one thing um, from the campaign that I thought um, I at least appreciate it. And that was, and, and you can step in and correct me if I've, if I frame this wrong, but I, I remember you posting something essentially saying Aaron O'Toole isn't that bad of a guy. We just have better policies. And I remember reading that and going, Oh, we have an adult in the room on, on both sides, because I mean, you have conservatives who are lighting their hair on fire over everything. And then on your team, there were also folks who were kind of portraying O'Toole as, as like a Donald Trump light. And I just, for a moment there, it was like, oh, this, this is what politics could be. 
Um, and so I, I just wanted to see if you could provide any color as to like what your perspective is and, and maybe why that's not as common as it should be. Yeah, it's not as common as it should be. And I think it partly comes down to, especially in a campaign, it's a team sport and you got to go out and win. And that means tearing the other team down in, in some ways, but it doesn't need to be like that. And I do think in our politics, when we take that approach, it's a short-term gain for a long-term loss of trust in the overall process. Because the fact of the matter is, I disagree with Aaron O'Toole on a number of policies, but I think we should find common agreement where we can, especially in a minority parliament. So here you have a leader who backed a huge expansion of the Canada workers' benefit, which would help lift many people out of poverty. It's something I've called for in the past. It's something Charlie Angus from the NDP has called for in the past. Well, there's a space where we can work together on to lift people out of poverty in this country and to help build up basic income supports for, for working age Canadians, which is a huge missing middle when you, when you think of our social safety net and, and social uh, infrastructure. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we should find that kind of common ground where we can. Now, Aaron had a challenge because he ran as a true blue and he came back to really who yep. he was in the course of the campaign. And that's a hard thing to trust and you don't know exactly mm -hmm. what you're getting. So, you know, I made some pointed criticisms at the same time, but I, I do think he, he's night and day from where we saw Andrew Scheer lead the party. And I think he is trying to move the party back and it's hard for them to do, but he's trying to move the party back to a more progressive conservatism. Yeah, it, it, it almost reminded me as like the door opening to shifting to US politics for a second, where we would see at times folks like Justin Amash collaborate with AOC on right. whatever it was they agreed upon. And I mean, for me, who's kind of like politically homeless, um, I thought that that was quite, quite refreshing. I'd certainly love to, to see more of that. Um, on some of the issues that you've really championed, and, and we've certainly given you credit for on this radio show, um, is harm reduction. And so the big question for you is what's next? What are some of the big items that you would love to see advanced over the course of this next minority government? So at the tail end of the last minority government, the government introduced Bill C-22, which came in three parts, but it effectively, it ended some mandatory minimum sentences, which there's no evidence to back those, and that's good. It restored conditional sentencing, that's good too. And the third element was actually a, a private member's bill that I drafted that then was incorporated as the third element of government legislation. And that was effectively, I knew the government was go wasn't going to decriminalize drugs and completely delete the possession offense. So I set out a number of health-focused, evidence-based principles. And basically the goal was to fetter the discretion. So police and prosecutors, if that bill becomes law, which we committed to reintroduce it within the first hundred days of this parliament, that it fetters the discretion of cops and of prosecutors so they can't move forward with a simple possession prosecution if it's not in accordance with these principles. And it, and it, fun, it functionally never will be, right? So it, it de facto decriminalizes, it will become virtually impossible to prosecute a simple possession charge, but it doesn't formally delete the offense. So it's not perfect. You know, it's not exactly where I would have wanted to get in the end. And so I have turned my mind to, okay, where next? And one, we have to see that bill through. And there are a couple of amendments. I think we can improve that legislation. And one of those amendments is I want, I also want to see the federal government move much more quickly to work with municipalities and provinces where they want to decriminalize and move further on harm reduction and to save lives. And BC wants to do this. Vancouver already has a submission in to Health Canada. 
Montreal, Toronto, other municipalities are talking about this and, and putting some work in as well. And so I would love to see, again, to fetter the discretion of the health minister to say the minister shall grant exemptions from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act if, it, if the application is in accordance with these principles and so and within a reasonable time period. Because what we've seen to date is there's a willingness, certainly from Minister Heidi, I know she's in a new portfolio now, and obviously the government sees this as a real live issue because now there's an associate minister dedicated to mental health and addictions. But the fact of the matter is we have yet to fully embrace where the evidence is, where the public health experts are, where the police chiefs are, where people lived experience, people have lost loved ones. We really do need to do more. And, and so I think if there's not political will to do it nationally right away, then at least get cities and provinces experimenting with it and show Canadians that the sky is not going to fall. You know, they said the sky was going to fall when we were legalizing cannabis. It didn't. If we decriminalize in Vancouver, if we decriminalize in BC, the sky's not going to fall. Canadians will learn that and we can maybe do it nationally from there. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point in terms of allowing smaller jurisdictions the option to kind of go that route. Um, whenever I talk to people about the, the members of parliament who I think have great ideas here and there, I always bring your name up and I always talk about harm reduction. And a lot of people will say, well, I think that his comments fall on deaf ears. But in some sense, I almost feel like maybe some of your advocacy on this has shifted the Overton window in terms of what we can talk about. And I use Aaron O'Toole as an example because there were moments on the campaign where he was even acknowledging that arresting people was probably not the, the way to deal with substance abuse or illicit substances. And so do you feel like there's a, a maybe an, a, a national tone that is shifting more in the direction that you and I would agree with? I think unquestionably, yes. So it helps that you've got people living through a pandemic and they see politicians listen to public health experts and public health expertise and advice has been prioritized. And guess what? They're not only calling for vaccinations, they're also calling for an end to the criminalization of drugs and to treat drug use as a health issue. So I think there's that element that is really impactful. Police chiefs being on board last July, they call for decriminalization. That helps. But it absolutely helps to have people in my position raising their voices and pushing. And I know this because the government was not going to introduce C-22 exactly as it was if I hadn't introduced the bill that I had a year earlier, right? And so I've seen the impact where in less than a year, the government actually picked up legislation that it will make a demonstrable difference. And then the question becomes, okay, how much further can we push? And, and the other part I will say is, you know, the, the government has taken steps not only on the criminalization side, but on the safe supply side. And so I think that's another area where when I think of how do we save lives, how do we pursue this conversation further? I think the Global Commission on Drug Policy has it right. The move ultimately has to be to strict regulation and a controlled and regulated supply. And decriminalization is but a step on that path to, to that controlled, regulated, and safe supply. And, and in some cases, very strictly regulated. Obviously, you know, penicillin is legal, but it's, you can't get it except prescription from a, from a doctor. And so there's this gradient of risk and availability and how we, we manage and control different substances for public health purposes. But, you know, getting to that place, I think we do have to lean into safe supply a lot more to save lives now, but also shift the conversation towards a regulatory one. And so in this parlance, credit to the government for, for getting there, I, I think, sooner than later. But I, I think we still need sustained advocacy on that file as well to continue to move that window. Yeah, it's, it's a very good point um, in regards to how you keep moving this forward. And I, I always scratch my head because, I mean, for anyone who really talks about drug policy and how that intersects with the criminal justice system, a lot of the time Portugal is pointed to 
And I've still yet to figure out why that hasn't really hooked the people who aren't on board, because it is a very much a real case study in overall harm reduction and basically just treating it a different way. And in my eyes, it, it shows that the sky doesn't fall. Um, it's not, it doesn't mean it's the wild west and you have heroin sold at convenience stores. Um, but it, it does take a, an approach that deals with it, in my opinion, in a much more adult manner. Um, what is your take on, on whether or not Portugal has provided a good case study or is my description of them being a good case study false? No, it, it's a very good case study. And they were one of the first jurisdictions to, to pursue decriminalization in a serious way. And their model is a little bit more administrative in the sense that cops can still pick folks up and they, instead of sending them to jail and the threat of incarceration, they might you know just tell people to go on their way with a warning most often. But in some cases, they get sent to this dissuasion commission and tribunal. And thankfully, that's a health-focused tribunal. That's as it should be. And But they do have punitive more punitive administrative sanctions that they can levy. But look, the results speak for themselves. I think it was a 60% increase in people seeking treatment when they decriminalized. They saw overdose deaths go down. Drug use didn't go up in any demonstrable way. So overwhelmingly a success. Now, I would say we can get pretty close to that with C-22 because what you're going to see in that legislation is police officers will be able to Yes, they technically can charge individuals. Prosecutors can technically still pursue a prosecution, but only consistent with these public health principles, which will really mean what we really see is cops give warnings to individuals to say, don't do this again, or they'll refer them to treatment on a voluntary basis and, you know, and continue to make sure that information is in their hand or offer to drive them to that treatment center. And we'll see a lot more of that kind of community policing, I think, in an effective way. The real push, though, is going to require the police chiefs who believe in this and have the resources to train their police officers. So it's on the ground, the people, the boots on the ground are doing exactly what the police chiefs believe because that, that disconnect still does happen, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. There has to be some top down leadership there from police chiefs who um, acknowledge what you're arguing, making sure that their officers are equipped with, the know-how and the knowledge. I mean, I look at the the debate about, um, I may be mispronouncing, but is it naloxone? Right. Uh, and whether or not law, law enforcement officers should have um, that on them to stop overdoses. And in my mind, it's like, well, yes, if those are the people who are getting called to respond to these things, then exactly. it should be a no-brainer. Um, and then on the question of no-brainers, another one I wanted to pick your, um, pick your brain about is the excise tax on non-alcoholic beer, which... I never knew existed until about this week. Uh, and I started doing some digging and it's, I think $2 and 82 cents a hectoliter. But for me, I could never find a really good justification for why it exists because the, the use of sin taxes are obviously either to discourage use or to recover costs uh, like alcohol related costs for the healthcare system. Um, but I don't think that would be appropriate for either if you look at non-alcoholic beer. And so I'm just curious as to what your take is on if it's appropriate to have an excise tax on non-alcoholic beer. So I would say, obviously, we should not have an excise tax on non-alcoholic beer. I was unaware that we did. And I understand that we don't have an excise tax for non-alcoholic spirits and wine. So just as a matter of consistency, you think non-alcoholic beer would be uh, part and parcel of that. I would also say, we need to reform excise taxes 
a little more broadly than that too, because we also, I think, unfairly punish cannabis, uh, those 100%. who use cannabis. Yep. And, and we really have uh, a novel, but unfortunately novel system when you compare jurisdictions across North America, where you have many jurisdictions that have sales taxes, jurisdictions that have excise taxes, very few have both. And we not yep. only have both, but we also don't have then a medicinal system that is providing the supply as needed. So we actually have excise taxes on medicinal cannabis, which yep. is in which is insane from yeah. the perspective of fairness and, and the and the perspective that you're talking about, which is we're not trying to dissuade medical cannabis, surely. So nope. uh, so there, I think excise taxes need a, a much more serious look, not, yes, non-alcoholic beer, but I would also say a little bit broadly too. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I recently had a piece in the financial post and that was excise tax was one of the big ones, the, the $1 per gram, switching that to a floating percentage, getting rid of um, the excise tax on, on medical, which for most people, given that most people, if they are can, uh, consumers of cannabis or recreational consumers, so they have no idea that it exists for medical patients. And it's just a really insane disparity in my view, because we don't do that for anything else. If a doctor prescribes you penicillin or any, any drug, um, you're not paying a sin tax on it. Uh, and so it just has always seemed quite strange to me that patients uh, are getting soaked in the process. Uh, so that brings us to the, the end of this segment. We really appreciate you joining the show. Looking forward to seeing how you're going to carry the banner for harm reduction, but also the other things that you're passionate about uh, in this next minority government. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio coming to you on Saga 960 AM in the Peel region and the Big Talker 106.7 in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, great interview with Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Always uh, fantastic to have someone in government on the show talk about what's next. Um, and also to just talk about politics in a way that's candid. It's not, uh, you're not getting fed uh, the talking points. Not massaged. The, yeah, and the punchlines. Not with a guy like him, which um, is rare. Um, but great to see because I mean that that allows for listeners, the Canadian ones, is in, in uh, specifically to just hear from someone who's telling it like it is as they see it, as opposed to the kind of pre-performed charade of political talking points that we usually get when we see folks on TV and whatnot. So um, great to have him on the show. Looking to to have a couple other. Uh, members of parliament hopefully on the show um, over the next uh, few months um, both Canadian and American on a variety of issues so stay tuned invites are being sent out so hopefully some more heavy hitters uh, on the docket for us yeah that'd be very good uh, we're getting a, a pretty good selection of interviews over there on our YouTube page uh, that you guys can find uh, just look up consumer choice radio we are there and active and we got plenty of uh, of great interviews that we've collected now on episode 95 approaching number 100 david that's quite a milestone mhm yeah yeah it's a uh, we've come a long way a long way 95 episodes um and then very uh very lucky for us we'll likely uh, get the chance to record one of these episodes while we are both enjoying the canals of venice uh, in late November, so oh, yes, uh, stay yes. tuned for a for a special 
uh, Italian episode of Consumer Choice Radio where we, we will be sipping Aperol Spritz's uh, canal side. Um, so looking forward to that. <laughs> I think you're just ready to get out of the country. Uh, explore the old continent a bit. <laughs> can can you hear the excitement in my voice? I mean, I'm also like a huge fan of Italy in general. Uh, I think if I could live anywhere else, that would probably be where I would live, even though I don't speak Italian. Uh, oh, you'd live there but... for about a week, and then you'd uh, you'd regret it. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys if you guys think your countries are bureaucratic messes, just wait until you uh, you meet the Italian <laughs> system. <laughs> That's true. That is very true. Our our colleague Luca can tell us in full detail about the headaches of Italian bureaucracy. Yeah, those things pile up. So let's look here at uh, sort of what we got across the docket. I know uh, since I was out, uh, I had a lot of stuff. You talked about the negotiation over these infrastructure bills and all the spending and the trillions. And, you know, luckily nothing got passed, whatever. We'll just kind of have to wait to see how all this stuff works out. Um, I really did like your interview. I think there were some great points brought up there. You don't get to talk about taxation much, as you mentioned, with uh, people who tend to be on the left. So that was uh, refreshing somewhat. But uh, let's talk about one thing that you had mentioned previously, and that is the brand new Trump social media network. Mm-hmm. So you, you've read a little bit between the lines. Tell me what you know, and, and let's see how, how far we can take this, this, uh, this fun fact. I mean, all I know is that he's created a social media platform and that the stock for it just flew through the roof. Um, I actually don't know much more about it. Um, You'll probably have to fill me in just because I don't... That's not something I'm particularly jazzed about using. (laughs) But uh, I did know that... um, the Trump SPAC digital world uh, acquisition was had huge gains. Um, and yeah, what happens next? I don't know. What's your take on all of this? Well, first, let's look at the, the SPAC side uh, for those who are interested. Let's look at the stock. It's the Digital World Acquisition Corporation. And I'm um, looking over there at MarketWatch. Uh, we're about at $91. Um, oh. Market is open. Um, basically it did reach a peak of about $143. Uh, it opened down near nine. So if you got in early, you probably made some good money, uh, for this, uh, special purpose acquisition vehicle or whatever it's called. Up 635%. Yeah. Uh, So talk, talk about a meme stock. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about this. So this is truth. Social is the name of this. So Trump had tried, to do his own social network type thing with a little microblog uh, that was like from the desk of Donald J. Trump. Uh, this was basically just a little WordPress website that had versions of essentially what would be tweets that would go out. And those, I guess, could be shared a little bit. People would screenshot them and something like that, but it wasn't anything interactive. Uh, I know that the guys over at Gab, Gab.io, they've been really trying hard to get Trump on the platform. They've reserved you know, the handle and everything. seems he wasn't inter- interested because Trump has to have his finger in absolutely everything. So, so this company, True Social, so what's interesting is that there was a version of this that was leaked is not the right term, but there was like the beta site or the alpha site that was put out there and people were able to subscribe and create accounts. 
And it turns out that it's actually based on the Mastodon instance code, uh, which is an open source platform. Uh, Mastodon is like, imagine if Twitter code was open source and you could just put it on any website. That's what it is. And what the people had done at at, uh, Trump's company is they had taken the Mastodon, put it on there, and then they basically said, you know, if you copy any of this, you're breaking IP and you're going to go to jail. (laughs) So they took something that was open source. They changed like the top line and basically said that, you know, you're not allowed to copy and which is totally against the spirit of all of this stuff and particularly Mastodon. And if you don't know how Mastodon works, essentially it's just an instance or like a server where you have your own little private Twitter feed. You can invite your friends and then you can connect to other servers and other networks and kind of grow uh, what is called the Fediverse. So I run my own over on freewheel.social if you're interested. And there's a lot of other ones that I'm plugged into. It's a great alternative uh, social media network, you know, of your own choosing and of your own creation. So basically this whole truth social is just going to be a Mastodon instance, much like I have. Um, You know, he's got (laughs) millions more, obviously, to do a a bit more coding and change the colors and the bars and stuff. But uh, yeah, I even saw some polls that said something like 70% of Republicans are thinking of joining this new network which I think is yeah. ridiculous because you don't join the networks to just be in the bubble. You know, you're normally you're just trying to reach out and connect with people. But then again, what do I know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the, I don't know if I necessarily like that because it just keeps people insulated from opinions that they might not necessarily, uh, like, and that's certainly not good. Um, I have no issue with them kind of charting their own course and making their own platform. Um, I mean, the interest, the, I think the biggest interesting comment, I believe it was the Mooch, Scaramucci, um, for, for those who don't remember, he, he was the press secretary for Donald Trump for about four minutes uh, <laughs> until he insulted Steve Bannon. Um, and he basically said, well, I hope Trump makes billions of dollars off of this because then he'll be less likely to want to run for president, um, which I don't know is true. But I thought that that was quite a hilarious take. Yeah, that's a very good one because if we look at the SPAC and we look at the amount of money and shares and all of that, I'm sure there was there's a good amount. I mean, uh, for for this, I, I mean, I'll see what it's about. I think they're probably going to, because I see there's a pre-order thing over there on the app store so i think is it in test flight no not even okay you can kind of sign up for a little beta version um but i what is it going to come of it i don't know it's exactly it is a mastodon clone like if you just look at it it looks exactly like my site so it's just about the people that you're going to be able to get there and you know i am a big fan of alternative uh, social media networks and and other platforms um a big one that actually there's big news on uh on the front of acquisitions, uh, the platform Locals, uh, which is sort of like a Patreon for conservatives a bit. They actually uh, bought Rumble, which is a sort of video platform that a lot of people are using exclusively, including uh, Glenn Greenwald is on there, Tulsi Gabbard is on there now. And I think that's interesting because there is stuff coalescing, and if people are not happy on YouTube and Facebook and all the rest, they can they can try out these alternatives. 
Um, for Trump's thing, I don't know. I mean, he's really going to be chewed down by a lot of the demands of running an open network and platform. And as soon as you find one guy who is using, I don't know, hate speech, death threats, child porn, they're going to be blocking like crazy as well. So <laughs> we'll see yes. when, the, when it comes back to bite him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a user experience perspective, like between Gab and Parler and now this, it's like one of them, I think, in my opinion, only one of them can really like monetize and survive. Um, and so which one is it going to be? One, only one of them really has the president behind it. So, or the former president behind it. So maybe that'll help. But at the same time, maybe actually that won't, maybe, maybe that will be part of the reason why it fails if it does. But I guess time will tell on that one. Yeah, time will tell. So we'll see if you guys, uh, get early access, let us know. Uh, hello at <laughs> consumerchoiceradio.com and, uh, we'll see what's happening there. I'm sure there's some going to be some fascinating tales and all kinds of people uh, discussing stuff, when, especially when it comes to the crazy people who are going to be on there and then basically saying, oh, how can Trump allow this? And we're going to go through this whole rigmarole and they're going to talk about trying to get rid of Section 230 and yeah, all kinds of tech backlash that not a good thing. Well, I mean, maybe this will change his perspective on 230 because if 230 is changed and they're liable for what's published in this network, well, then that opens a whole nother can of worms because if someone engages in something that is defined as illegal um, and you maybe miss it or slow or your algorithms don't catch it properly, well, then you're then liable for what they've said. And that, I mean, talk about, uh, for a guy who's been embroiled in lawsuits for a long time talk about opening yourself up to a long list of potential future lawsuits and so it is funny that after railing against 230 for so long his platform will undoubtedly benefit from it oh no of course it will and i don't know how you know active he'll be day to day i'm sure it's just kind of like his branding deals or he just kind of hands it off to some independent team <laughs> Yeah. I yeah, I actually was... I forget about Trump. The only way that I basically am reminded of him is when the media tells me to think about him. Which yeah, I mean, I understand it and I would really love to see a side-by-side -side comparison at this point what the ratings are for many of the television networks and like clicks and views on different news outlets in the kind of post-Trump era. I really wonder what that's like. Maybe COVID has been like an artificial bump, but it's got to be down. Yeah, I would say it's probably down for like center or center left news outlets, however you define that, because they just don't have the hysteria to comment on all day, every day anymore. I did see um, a, a ranking of cable shows and actually Newsmax has a couple of programs that's beating out MSNBC. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah. that's interesting. I don't know much about Newsmax other than their political affiliation, but um, that is interesting. I wonder, like, I wonder how, like, see, how is CNN's primetime coverage um, rating viewership-wise under a Biden presidency? So basically, um, from what I saw, I'm gonna have to go back into my my Twitter likes here, but essentially, the the main winner 
in all of the, for, you know, for the important demos, as they say, it's Fox. So Fox News has basically the top 10. And I think after that is Rachel Maddow. But essentially, okay. it's all Fox News, Rachel Maddow. CNN is somewhere down. The, I mean, they have something like 150,000 people watching, apparently, in that demo. Like, I think it's, what is it, 25 to 40 or something? Yeah, that's really low. Oh, yeah. Like, consider like a Joe Rogan podcast and the viewership on that. We'll have to talk about more about that um, for next week's show, because I think we should probably dive more into this. But um, it's been a great episode, great interview. I hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, stay tuned for, for more to come from Yael and I. All right. Until next time. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science. Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And, as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
of America is healed and well again. Say it. Hallelujah. Glory. 